and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 108. I'm sorry it's taken so long to put out the next episode, but as happens from time to time, life's gotten in the way. I hope everybody is enjoying this holiday weekend. And yes, here in the States, it's one of the biggest. It's the 4th of July. And I hope every one of you here has great plans for some fun and something that's peaceful and gratifying. Because of the delay in getting out that next episode, we're going to defer chopping the Oswald timeline into smaller pieces. If time permits, at a later date, we'll get back to that. But you can listen to the comprehensive timeline in episode 107. Now that we have finished up our work with the Oswald timeline, it's back to Russia, back to the time when Oswald was living in Minsk. So it's a very interesting period of his life because Oswald, as a person, was just rounding the milestone age of 20 and was coming into his own as an adult. And clearly, some of the social impediments that were so prominent for him in the States took on a different dynamic when he got to the Soviet Union. Here, he did make what may have been a first set of adult relationships outside of the military realm. People who were able to see him and view him and get to know him, they were Russian, of course. And many of them had things to say about Oswald, and you'll hear from some of them on this trip to Minsk. And what's relevant about it is their assessment of the type of person that he was, or at least to them, who he was. And there are some relatively strong statements and opinions made by these individuals who just don't see Lee Harvey Oswald as being the killer of a president. Well, you never know what lurks in a man's mind or heart or soul until they do it. And then you know for sure, and whether it's a shock at that moment or whether it's something that someone saw coming, is sometimes a function of the unique interactions that people have with a perpetrator. Seeing it from afar is different than seeing the man close up and viewing things with forethought and a trained eye. But one thing is for sure, it's easier to see what and why when you are looking in the rearview mirror. Only with Lee Harvey Oswald, even the benefit of hindsight has yet to reveal it all. And of course, the backdrop to all of this is that he may have been a spy. And the question underneath that was, for whom? Was it for the U.S. or the USSR? Or both? So many complexities. So let's delve into more time in Minsk and begin the journey and learn more. Without further ado, let's listen to episode 108 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Igor Ivanovich Guzman works for the KGB in Minsk, and he is a character in this next act of the play. Guzman spent almost 50 years in the Soviet machinery and the KGB, 
and about half of it was spent in Minsk. You really have to appreciate the period of time after World War II from 1945 to 1960. When Oswald got there, it was 15 short years after the end of the war. And as we mentioned in a prior episode, there was an immense amount of rebuilding that had to go on inside of places like Minsk. Some of the fiercest fighting during the war took place in this part of the world. Previously, we mentioned the physical reconstruction that was going on in Minsk. It was so evident. And of course, it related to all of the damage which actually occurred during the war. But it was more than that. As the Iron Curtain fell over Eastern Europe and the war ended, certain practical realities began to settle in. And the brutality that came with war in general, and which came in the grandest of ways during World War II, bred a human suspicion and mental toughness that was natural and arose from the ashes and anchored itself in places like Belarus. When the Nazis invaded and then occupied during World War II, there were collaborators, people who were either forced into being collaborators or by circumstance made their way into relationships with the everyday power structure of the Nazi regime. And many did it just to survive, but others did it because they were sympathetic. After the end of the war, the Russians made concerted efforts to purge these areas of any element of Nazi occupation, and that included ferreting out those collaborators that really were sympathetic to the Nazis. It's understandable, but it also created an immense machine inside of Russia through the KGB and this internal suspicion and continuous hunt for traitors became an inherent element of the reconstruction of Russia after the war. An element that was just as important to the Russians as replacing the tallest building that had been reduced to rubble during the conflict. This group, the KGB and its affiliate elements of the Soviet machinery, became acutely aware of penetrations by the West, and occasionally they did have to deal with defectors and foreign agents attempting to get inside of the Soviet Union. Now, their latest assignment was to follow this young man, this American who had attempted to defect from the U.S., tried to commit suicide to ensure that the Soviets would keep him and was looking for permanent citizenry and resident status. This was a case that was, well, not the usual kind that Guzman was used to working on. Soon after Oswald's arrival, Guzman would assign an important operative to cover him and his movements and try to determine what Oswald really was. His name was Stepan Vasilievich Grigoryev. He was a local, reportedly an investigator that was highly trained in the game of interrogation of German and British spies and had a special knack for ferreting out those who had gone west and then come back to the USSR. He spoke some English, so he had the advantage over some other interrogators that might have been assigned to a case like Oswald. The hierarchy that was following Oswald was high enough up, all right. In the world of the KGB, these men were only two or three layers from the Kremlin. Clearly, this assignment was known by definition to the higher-ups in the Kremlin, and it was important to them. After all, the decision to even send Oswald to Minsk had attracted the involvement of some of the highest members of the Politburo. Not many understood how Oswald had already made a name for himself in the Soviet Union. But before he even stepped foot off the train in Minsk, the Soviet intelligence apparatus was trying to figure out what type of animal they really had here. Who was Oswald? 
more importantly, what was Oswald? The analysis resulted in multiple hypotheses. There was opposing conclusions within the Russian intelligence community from the very start of this Oswald saga. And you might say that, ironically, this inability to pin him down started with the Russians before it blossomed with the Americans. What went through the minds of those Russians? Well, first, he was a Marine, and the Russians were aware that the FBI and the CIA frequently recruited their spies from the Marines, the very place that Oswald had just come from. And his recent time in the Marines was spent as a radar operator, which also did not go unnoticed. They were also suspect of his pro-communist views because his knowledge of Marxist-Leninist theory was, at least by the Soviets' assessment, rather weak. And for whatever reason, the Soviets were suspicious of this. And his Russian, well, it wasn't very good. But they wondered if it wasn't better than he was letting on. Better because he had been schooled by the U.S. government. But he might just be hiding his proficiency in Russian. And that was something that they were going to put a keen eye on as Oswald continued to study Russian while in the Soviet Union. They also wondered if the U.S. intelligence units were using Oswald as a test case to see how quickly a person like Oswald could be planted within the Soviet Union to be an operative for the CIA or FBI, and how difficult it would be to get that done. The KGB knew that Oswald was high-profile enough that they had to be cognizant of how they handled the assignment. One objective was to avoid limiting the personal freedoms that Oswald would be exercising and also to not miss anything that would lead them to an answer of just who Oswald really was and to answer the ultimate question of whether he was a spy for the U.S. or not. And they were fairly sure that direct interrogation and interaction with him would likely limit their opportunity to catch him in the act or at least learn the truth about him. The Kremlin and the KGB interest in Oswald and their conclusions that it was critical to determine who and what he was led them to an intense surveillance of Oswald during his time there. And eventually, that intelligence would generally be available, or at least some of it, to researchers such as Norman Mailer. The detailed and rich moment-by-moment account that we have of Oswald in Mintz is because of just that. And there are elements, too, his own historic diary and the recounting of the story by many Russians themselves, Russians who were right there in the moment with Oswald in the Soviet Union, and those individuals were in a unique position to tell their stories related to Oswald, and perhaps with less bias, and that was unlike many of their counterparts from the States. And, namely, that was attributable to the fact that For many years after the assassination, the Soviet authorities had approached friends of Oswald in Minsk and warned them not to talk about Oswald or discuss the assassination. The irony of this is that unlike their U.S. counterparts, the Russians did not discuss nor hear discussion about the assassination. So their thoughts and recollections, even 30 years later, were likely more pristine than the similar recollections of witnesses in the U.S., that had been mixed and matched and influenced by years of trading ideas on topics and listening to other witnesses and alternative accounts. And you will hear from some of these Russians during this episode. Not many of them speak English, and this is audio from a video 
So as a result, some of what you are hearing is through a translation voice that is not the actual voice of the individual in question. But what you will hear are the actual words spoken by these acquaintances of Oswald. And part of what the KGB accumulated in its surveillance was done with a secretly positioned tape recorder and gathered with a bug. So there are tapes of Oswald speaking in his apartment, some are before Marina and some are after, and some show the marital tension between them that started almost right away. The listening device was installed in Oswald's ceiling, and the family living upstairs from where Oswald's apartment was were located years later. They had emigrated to Israel, where family members would later recall that they had been asked to leave for a few days while this work was being done. In one KGB tape recording transcript taken on May 19, 1962, and recalled by Norman Mailer in his book, Oswald's Tale, Marina shouts out, You idiot! With Oswald snapping back, Shut up. Take the baby. Timing is everything in life, and as I mentioned earlier, had it not been for just a thaw in the Cold War at a moment in which at least a portion of the Soviets wanted to open up and improve relationships with the United States, these files related to the KGB reconnaissance might not have ever been made available on Oswald. The first post-Soviet president of Belarus, Stanislav S. Shishkevich, ordered the KGB to open the file. It's a fitting irony that Shishkevich got to know Oswald in the earlier days of their lives in Minsk. Alexander Lukashik, a reporter with American-financed Radio Liberty and author of Trace of the Butterfly, which was published around 2011, cites the role of Dr. Ernst Titovetz in creating audio recordings of Oswald's voice, perhaps used by the KGB to authenticate Oswald's southern accent. You'll hear Dr. Titovitz a little bit later in the tidbits to come. Dr. Titovitz later used those recordings to promote his own book, entitled Oswald, Russian Episode, a memoir detailing Titovitz's friendship with Oswald in Minsk. The book describes much, including conversations and double dates before Oswald married his wife, Marina, Oswald's life working at the Minsk radio factory, and his friendship with Titovitz himself. Titovitz now has a doctorate in biological science, and he described Oswald as sometimes aggressive, but ultimately a man who could not be an assassin. He was one of many who expressed the idea that it just could not have been Oswald who pulled the trigger and killed the president. Let's pivot to Oswald's apartment for a moment. Even today, the apartment Oswald lived in has rather poor sound insulation, and in the years after the assassination, it has become a place of interest to researchers and reporters. Those that get a chance to visit and experience the apartment see the nice views that Oswald had of Minsk out of the windows that lead onto the balcony. You can see the nearby river from there, and you would get a sense of how easy it must have been to surveil what Oswald was doing inside. But not all those listening in on Oswald were members of the KGB. Irina Janellis is a retired journalist, and she was living downstairs from Oswald. She was only 14 years old at the time, but her memories are still vivid, and she recounted once overhearing Oswald singing in the shower. She and her giggling schoolgirl friends wrote him a note, doing their best to put it into English, and basically they complimented him on his singing. Oswald kindly responded, and the response in writing from Oswald is something of a treasure to the family these days. 
the note back from Oswald in longhand writing, and you have to remember that Oswald went by the name Alex while he was in Minsk. Well, it reads as follows. Dear girls, I was very glad to receive your note, and I want very much to meet you. Please feel free to come and see me. In your next letter, please say when it shall be convenient for you. Sincerely, Alex Oswald. In the end, this intense surveillance conducted by the Soviets seemingly points to one thing. They were highly suspicious of Oswald and not sure if he was an American spy or not. They intensely followed him for two and a half years, and the record is rich in mundane details. And Oswald suspected he was being watched. In one incident, along with his friend Ernst Titovitz, they searched his apartment for bugs. Titovitz misinterpreted Oswald at the time and thought initially that they were actually looking for actual bugs in his apartment, not understanding that Oswald was referring to a planted listening device and not an insect. As I just mentioned, Titovitz would later write a book on his relationship with Oswald. And during his research, he came away with a real appreciation of how intense the surveillance had been of Oswald by the Soviet authorities, and that even the central location of the flat that the Soviets afforded Oswald within Minsk was deliberate. Titovitz would say Oswald was placed in a carefully thought-out environment, easy to observe his minutest movements. Oswald in Minsk could get the attention that he wanted, and he did. The attention that he so craved and that was so seemingly absent in his social settings in the States before and then after he entered the military. He would come without warning and knock at someone's door and say, hello, here I am, says Ina Markava, an English language translator who was a student at the time. And that's it. He would spend two or three hours. In short, he thought he was the center of the group, she says. I remember that we were in the room sitting, and if he thought we had forgotten about him, he would immediately remind everybody that he was there and that he should not be forgotten. In this same time frame, he wrote to his brother Robert, saying that, I feel I am at last with my own people. Or so he thought, or at least wanted to think. Most researchers believe it is clear that the Russian authorities largely created a life for Oswald that was engineered to be better than the average citizen within the communist environment at the time in Minsk. There may have been many reasons for that, some obvious, some perhaps not. But in the end, Oswald lived alone in a 260-square-foot apartment, although it had a bathroom, and it surely was in one of the better apartment complexes in Minsk. It was still a communist country. One researcher made a comparison that puts it into perspective, indicating that one of Oswald's friends, Sergei Skop, who lived in an apartment twice the size of Oswald's, but the difference was that he shared it with six people. It's a simple thing to say, and most researchers say it, that Oswald entered the Soviet Union with a revolutionary attitude of sorts, this strong connection to the idea of Marxism and some form of utopia. But many believe that Oswald's passion was something akin to what was stated in the book Interloper. It was simply a creation of his craving for acceptance, permanency, and substance, as opposed to a heartfelt expression of solidarity with the Marxist communist movement. That's the case simply because Oswald was plainly ignorant about the Soviet Union. As Savodnik, the 
author of The Interloper writes, he did not really grasp that the revolution he had traveled thousands of miles to join had been consumed by a massive and terrifying violence, which had already happened a quarter of a century earlier. Furthermore, his embrace of a caricatured worker's paradise was obsolete. In fact, it had never existed. He was unknowingly wading into a country that was not the place he expected it to be. He was an outsider still, but he did not know it. Probably the most unanticipated but dangerous thing of all was the creation over three or four decades of a vast network of informants and spies who made it impossible for anyone in Russia to speak out or even to think the way the people once did before the revolution. And Oswald would soon be caught routinely in its web. Before his arrival, in his own mind, Russia was a paradise, but really it was a creation of Oswald's imagination, full of hopes such that when he arrived he was expecting to see the fruits of a social revolution. But all he really saw in the end was a revolution that the Russian people were trying to forget. As Savodnik said, once an outsider, always an outsider. Many researchers believe that most of Oswald's friends in the Soviet Union were actually KGB plants who informed on him throughout his time in the Soviet Union. Whether that is true or not is not really clear, but it is true that, in general, the informant network was vast at the time in the Soviet Union, and some of them surrounded Oswald. Whatever the case, Oswald, in the beginning, was considered exotic for being an American, and as such, Oswald himself finally found an environment where people found him interesting, and with more substance, and at least superficially for a time, he was accepted. And the KGB was no stranger to using sex in the intelligence and counterintelligence world, so the presence of attractive women and individuals of some substance who eventually made their way into Oswald's circle may very well have been engineered to some extent. That has obvious ramifications, and your thoughts may have gone directly to Marina Oswald, but we'll get to her story in an upcoming episode. We have the wonderful PBS presentation, Frontline, which did a show entitled, Who Was Lee Harvey Oswald? You've listened to portions of that in prior episodes, and so now let's pivot to that, and for some continuity purposes, let's start at the moment that Oswald was found in the bathtub, bleeding, after his attempted suicide, and then was taken to the hospital. and it was reddish, so it was blood. Lee uh, cut his wrist. Oswald was rushed unconscious to Botkin Hospital. His wounds were quickly stitched up and bandaged. He was then transferred to the psychiatric ward. Dr. Lydia Mikalina was on duty when Lee arrived. 
It was my impression immediately that this was a show suicide attempt, since he was refused political asylum, which he had been demanding. And he tried to obtain permission to stay in the Soviet Union by inflicting the wounds. After seven days, Oswald was ready to be discharged. But then the KGB called the hospital, telling them to hold him until they arrived. Sometime later, about 40 minutes, a large black car arrived and three young men came in. They confiscated his medical history, his discharge paper and all his documents. And then they told me they were taking him away. The KGB wanted to see if Oswald could be useful to them. Counterintelligence and intelligence, they both looked him over to see what he was capable of. But unfortunately, neither could find any ability at all. Oswald was moved to a hotel while the KGB considered his fate. After three days, he decided he'd had enough. It seems like three years. I must have some sort of a showdown. On October 31st, he went to the U.S. Embassy and demanded to see the consul, Richard Snyder. They put a piece of paper on my desk. It said, I have come to revoke my American citizenship. I have applied for Soviet citizenship. He also volunteered the information that he'd been while in the Marines, he'd been a, uh, a radar technician. And uh, that when he became a Soviet citizen, he, in, he intended to offer uh, to the Soviet authorities everything that he had learned. Snyder reported Oswald's threat to Washington, and the Marines changed their radar codes. But the KGB says it was unimpressed by the military intelligence Oswald was sharing with them. There were conversations, but this was such outdated information. The kind we say the sparrows have already chirped to the entire world, and now Oswald tells us about it. Not the kind of information that would interest such a high-level organization like ours. Meanwhile, word of Oswald's suicide attempt had reached the top levels of the Kremlin. Yekaterina Furtseva, seated just behind Nikita Khrushchev, was the highest-ranking woman in the Politburo. Furtseva became Oswald's champion and demanded the KGB reverse its decision and allow him to stay. If he's begging, to hell with him. Let him stay here in order to avoid an international scandal on account of such a nobody. We were not convinced this would be his last act of blackmail. We expected he would try again, which would be difficult to deal with in Moscow. So we decided to send him to Minsk. In January 1960, Oswald moved to Minsk. He now had the chance to become what he had always wanted to be a model young Marxist. Soviet authorities set him up in style. Despite a chronic housing shortage, 
he was given a choice apartment, a luxury unheard of for a young bachelor. At the Minsk radio and television factory, Oswald helped to build prototypes of new models. As in the Marines, he got off to a good start. Leonid Sagoyka worked with Oswald. When he started work after his training, he joined the team. He fit in well and worked well too. Oswald also befriended some college students interested in learning English. He became fast friends with Ernst Titovitz. Titovitz made tape recordings of Oswald to study his southern accent. The door of Henry's lunch counter opened and two men came in. They sat down at the counter. What's yours, George Axum? I gave him rather chance pieces to read. And those happened to be, well, Shakespeare from Othello, Ernest Hemingway. The two men at the counter read the menu. From the other end of the counter, Nick Adams watched... Titovitz also interviewed Oswald in mock dialogues. In one interview... Lee played the part of a killer. Will you tell us about your last killer killing? Well, it was a young girl under a bridge. She came in carrying a loaf of bread, and I just cut her throat from ear to ear. What for? Well, I wanted the loaf of bread, of course. <laughs> we're just having a great time, and actually we're laughing our heads off. The KGB was keeping Oswald under constant surveillance and it co-opted most of the people he met, including his best friend, Pavel Golovichev. I was met by one of their people, and it was like this. He said, you're a country ask you, you're a country demands. There is a foreigner here. It's in the country's interest for security, and so on. That was early on, but I told him about it a year later. I had three or four meetings with the KGB people. They gave me little assignments to provoke him, saying, try this out on him and see what he says. By January 1961, Oswald was becoming disillusioned with life in the Soviet Union. The work is drab. The money I get has no way to be spent. As my Russian improves, I become increasingly conscious of just what sort of a society I live in. He had become disillusioned with life here. He came here after reading a lot of Marx and Lenin, thinking that it was something good. But leaving here, he realized it was not so good. Then one night, at a dance in the Palace of Culture, a friend introduced him to Marina Prusikova. She was a very attractive lady. She dressed well. We went up to her with Lee Harvey Oswald, and he said straight away that he would like to get to know her. We were standing right here, beside that column. Of course, he fell in love with her straight away, at first sight, as we say in Russian. 
Marina Oswald declined to be interviewed for this program, but she did talk to writer Priscilla McMillan. McMillan befriended Marina after the assassination and wrote an intimate portrait of the Oswalds' life together. Marina liked Lee for several reasons. Uh, one was that he was polite. Uh, she liked his being foreign. She thought that an American would treat her better than a Russian. Six weeks after they met, a hasty wedding party was arranged at the home of Marina's uncle. But the KGB was bugging their apartment and monitoring everything that went on inside. They married and uh, they had a girl uh, very soon. I don't think they were the happiest family in the world. They had a lot of quarrels all the time and even some fights. Despite their quarrels, Lee and Marina planned to return to the U.S. with their daughter, June. But it took 18 months until Soviet and U.S. authorities finally granted them permission to leave. We concluded that he was not working for American intelligence. His intellectual training, experience and capabilities were such that it would not show the FBI and the CIA in a good light if they used people like him. for listening to episode 108 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.